everyone. Welcome to the lecture podcast for English 206, week 5. As always, you can find the PDF of the lecture slides that accompany this lecture in your Canvas module. So this week, we're going to talk about naturalism. And naturalism is a sort of literature that's related to realism that came out of the late 19th and early 20th century. So developed uh, alongside and a little bit after realism. Uh, in you can definitely see the ways in which they overlap. Like realism, naturalism is really interested in the quote unquote everyday, the commonplace, the common people, particularly the lives of the working class. But naturalism has much more of a specific ideological agenda and a kind of codified lens, a, a sort of strict way of, of seeing the world uh, than, and, than realism does. Um, we talked last week about sort of the different things that realistic texts and particularly regionalism and, and kind of local color allowed people to argue for. Naturalism also allows authors to make arguments through their literature. But they're more interested often in making arguments not about specific places or specific people, but about how humanity works overall and what the relationship is between human beings and nature. So on slide two for you here, uh, and when I say nature, I mean their nature, as in like their inner nature. We can think about human nature, and we can think about nature as in we sort of mean the outside world. And let's think about why those two words sort of overlap. Um, why in English we use the same word to, to describe our sort of inner landscape, human nature, who we are, and the outer world, what we move through. That's kind of interesting, right? And, and the naturalists also found it quite interesting. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So let's go back, slide two. Uh, naturalism is a type of literature that attempts to apply scientific principles of objectivity and detachment to its study of human beings. So uh, there's, a, there's a strong thread of philo the philosophical in uh, naturalistic texts. Most, if not all, take this idea um, that characters can be studied through their relationship to their surroundings because humans are sort of uh, human beasts. This is Emile Zola's phrase, but this idea that there's a kind of scientific objectivity through which you can look at humans who are just animals in their own habitats and, and you can sort of study and learn from them there. And, you know, you can think about that kind of perspective, objectivity and detachment as, as a sort of way at looking at characters and things that happen to them, uh, is, is kind of detached, uh, and it can make for interesting distance between characters and scenarios and the sort of way that authors, uh, excuse me, yeah, the way that authors describe them. Uh, but often it, it's sort of more complicated than that also, I hope, uh, pretty obvious from this sort of brief definition here, that naturalists are taking a kind of scientific or quasi-scientific approach uh, to, to the literature they create and to the way that they view the world uh, that they are showing in that literature. So the sort of scientific principles of observation um, and detachment, this is... In American literature, from the 
sort of later part of the 19th century to in the early part of the 20th century. And this is true in, in Britain as well. And there's a lot of influence from Charles Darwin and from this idea of evolution and uh, understanding nature uh, and, and sort of the way that supposedly, um, and I say supposedly because Darwin's ideas were not adopted instantly or without uh, any questions. There was quite dramatic pushback to it. But some people uh, bonded very easily and very well with this idea of um, ad adaptation over time, survival of the fittest, uh, this way that like sort of life is sort of nasty, brutish, and short. It's not Darwin, but it, it's this idea that nature is, is quite competitive and uh, only the strong survive. It's also not Darwin, but you can see how Darwin sort of overlaps with a lot of sort of philosophical thoughts that were, were they're kind of swimming around out there, and this gave people a lens through which to see them. So uh, by the late 19th century, this, these sort of ideas had permeated the uh, American literary consciousness, and, and the American consciousness as well, it should be said. Um, one of, and in American literature, things tend to happen about 50 years after they happen in, in England. So if you see these threads perhaps earlier in, in English literature. However, that is a different class, a different day. I'm distracting myself, my apologies. Uh, okay, so you start to see the influence of this idea of evolution, survival of the fittest, uh, applied to human beings as well in, in a sort of philosophy or theory called social Darwinism, which was uh, advocated by most, um, most notably Herbert Spencer, kind of theorist. But in the late 19th century, social Darwinists uh, put forth the theory that individuals, groups, and peoples are subjected to the same Darwinian laws of natural selection as, uh, as everything else, as plants and animals are. And that meant that uh, it was unnecessary and even unethical to interfere with the uh, survival process. So, so social Darwinism was used to justify um, not creating social programs or ignoring the plight of uh, people who were poor or impoverished. It was, um, it was a go-to strategy for, um, for sort of passing blame uh, to, to people who weren't doing well for whatever reason. Social Darwinism was used to justify um, many sort of Indian removal projects. It was used to justify not helping poor people, not paying people more in this industrializing economy. The Gilded Age, the late 19th century, saw some of the largest inequities uh, in wealth and living standards that the United States had ever seen. And part of the way that people rationalized this was this idea that people who didn't have much, who were struggling, who weren't making it, uh, didn't have it because they weren't strong enough to survive. This was the natural process that you had to, uh, if they were strong enough, they would flourish. But because they aren't, they brought this on themselves. And if that sounds familiar, yeah, this strain of thinking is actually quite deeply rooted in certain parts of the American consciousness. And there is still a tendency in some places and in some ways to, to look down on, um, on, on people who seem to be struggling and to say, it's, it, they brought this on themselves. They just aren't strong or smart or fast or quick enough to deal with it. Uh, and and you can, that sort of thinking is, is, is really, um, is alive and well in the American consciousness. And this idea that, um, that social, you know, this, that humans are just human beasts. Again, go back to Zola's phrase. 
that they're just part of their own sort of natural ecosystem, even though their habitat is not uh, maybe the same habitat as, as, as the wild, but that their, their lives work the same way and obey the same principles. And that's not to say that all naturalists are endorsing social Darwinism, but to a certain extent, most texts, most naturalist texts, um, really do sort of buy into this idea that uh, he, they're writing about these sort of human beasts uh, that can be studied and the relationship they're surrounding using that sort of logic and using that sort of lens. Now, they take it to different and interesting places, but it's kind of that. Another uh, sort of view on what naturalism entails on slide three, uh, this is a quote from George Becker, who essentially translated naturalism as pessimistic materialistic determinism. And if that doesn't sound like a lot of fun, uh, I'm sure you noticed from the stories that you read for today that naturalism, and this, it's not fun, right? It's not a very fun um, genre. Good things don't often happen. Now, uh, pessimistic, pessimist expects the worst. Materialistic determinism, uh, basically where you are, your surroundings, it, it's predetermined. It, it kind of happens because of course it happens because this is the only thing that can happen with this context, with these tools, etc. cetera. Um, so yeah. Another way uh, on slide four here, I talked about this a little already, is to think of naturalism kind of literary scientific method as studying human beings as, uh, as human beasts, uh, governed by their instincts and their passions, and also thinking about the way uh, in which sort of people and the characters in these stories, their lives are governed by the force of heredity and environment. And again, this very scientific, very sort of Darwinistic, and the heredity, uh, the genes you inherit, the qualities of humanness and uh, the environment where you live and what kind of or where you are and what kind of effects that's going to have on you. So uh, think about it that way as well. Donald Spicer, who's one of these sort of literary theorists who who um, who wrote in the I think it was mid 20th century, uh, produced this textbook definition, literally, I have borrowed this from a textbook, a definition of how naturalist stories work. Um, and, and what the sort of tensions in them are. And he says there are two main tensions that you can see in uh, literary national, not nationalism, excuse me, naturalism. And so I put these on slide five for you. The first tension that he describes is ordinary subject matter versus epic qualities and responses. So naturalism, um, novels and short stories and poems tends to focus on lower middle class, or lower class characters on everyday life. Uh, it's a fictional world, um, which is commonplace and unheroic, and in which the sort of dull round of daily existence, so what happens to characters every day, the little things in their lives, uh, is the chief focus. But uh, what happens to the people in, or who the people in these worlds are, uh, what the reader discovers, what the writer creates, is these qualities in these characters that are usually associated with uh, as the heroic or the adventurous, such as acts of violence and passion, uh, like adventure or strength, um, and which culminate in desperate moments and violent death. So these very mundane settings uh, and, and situations and struggles that bring out these epic um, and impassioned, sort of deeply rooted primal responses. 
So, uh, and there's some great examples of this. Theodore Dreiser, um, Frank Norris wrote some pretty amazing novels. Uh, Carrie is one that you can, not that Carrie. <laughs> um, but I, I think like there's a, there's a whole sort of tradition uh, here which focuses on that contrast and focuses on that, um, that tension. And you can see that in our short stories today as well. The other tension that Heiser uh, describes is the contrast between truth and meaning. So naturalists, uh, naturalist writers often describe characters as though they are conditioned and controlled by the environment, heredity, instinct, or chance. Again, it's that sort of scientific method, that Darwinistic understanding of human beasts. But uh, the, he also... Heiser wrote this in the 20th century, so the default gender pronoun was him here. I'm using his language, but I would like to sort of change. But he or she, they, also suggest a compensating humanistic value in his characters or their fates, which affirms the significance of the individual and in his life. So let me take that out of um, his language for just a second here. Basically, these characters have no choice. They are these human beasts going through... Um, you know, responding to their environments as they've been conditioned by heredity and, and, and environment and et cetera. But uh, in this sort of fatalistic, deterministic space in which they're just being what they were born to be, there is some kind of meaning, that there's some kind of larger lesson. So the tension here is between the naturalist desire to sort of represent uh, these, the human reality, the human animal in his human habitat, his or her human habitat, uh, in the ways in which uh, ideas in life in the late 19th century sort of condition or um, often harm these humans. Like a lot of naturalism uh, and, and sort of the stories and within naturalism talk about how harsh the environments are, how realities of 19th century life, particularly poverty, particularly urban poverty, or uh, sort of um, frontier life because this is also the time of intense westward expansion. Uh, well, the time of continuing intense westward expansion, uh, particularly the 19th. This is something that happens over the 19th century. By the 20th century, yeah, but we still have some... some okay, sorry, distracted myself. But the idea is that these environments are harsh and these lives are hard. Uh, and there's also... And, and that needs to be shown, but there's also kind of a desire to find meaning in the experience, which sort of reasserts the validity of the human enterprise. So everything is predetermined and this is how it is and isn't it pretty bleak, but somehow there's still meaning that, that, that preserves the validity of the human experience, which you can see is kind of a, a bit of a knife edge to walk. And more often than not, uh, you can see the sort of, text come down more on one side of that than the other. And I'll let you guys think about, again, the stories we read for today and, and this week um, and, and think about how we're on that balance. It sort of falls. So on slide six, I have a list here of sort of the qualities of um, texts that belong under the rubric of naturalism. So these are sort of ways to recognize uh, whether something it belongs in the naturalism catalog. Start with the characters uh, frequently, but not always. Uh, they're not very well educated. They tend to belong in the, wor in the working class. Uh, their lives are governed by, again, heredity, instinct, and passion. Their attempts at exercising free will or choice uh, are, are sort of 
blocked or, or limited by forces beyond their control, by social Darwinism and sort of other theories to uh, explain their fate to the reader. So there's a, the way that the authors frame the characters, how they are and what happens to them often goes through this idea, these like social Darwinism and, and, and like this kind of philosophy. The setting is frequently urban. If it's rural, it censors on humans, the human struggle to survive outside of their natural habitat. There's a sort of irony here. Humans' natural habitat does not seem to be nature. So in stories like um, the ones you read today by Crane in London, you can see exactly how vulnerable humans are to nature uh, and how easily they are defeated or almost defeated by it. Some key themes starting on slide seven here. The naturalistic test offers a clinical panoramic slice of life drama that is often a chronicle of despair or degeneration. It's a quote from Walcott, another literary critic, and I think that sums up really well uh, this sort of clinical panoramic slice of life. Um, perfect, right? This is everyday life uh, with sort of a detached or objective or quasi-detached or objective perspective uh, that ends badly chronicle despair or degeneration. Uh, the characters in stories under the sort of rubric of naturalism do not often get happy endings. Uh, nature is, is ult in their own instincts and they're it's very cruel. Um, although cruelty implies a kind of caring, um, which I think some naturalists would, would argue with me does not exist. Okay, so uh, some key themes, survival, determinism, violence, taboo. Sort of think about what is natural, what isn't, what people will do, what the characters will do in order to survive. Uh, the forces of heredity and environment, uh, an indifferent deterministic universe. Naturalistic texts often describe the futile event attempts of human beings to exercise free will, often ironically presented in, in a universe that reveals free will as an illusion and nature is an indifferent force acting on the lives of human beings. So the universe itself is indifferent and deterministic. Uh, deterministic sort of things will happen as they always happen. Uh, nature is indifferent as well. So there's these, these sort of the context in which people live and, and the forces that afflict them don't care. They're inexplicable or they're not inexplicable. They're um, implacable. They cannot be stopped and they cannot, and they don't care. They just, they just happen. Uh, each individual is composed of strong and often warring emotions, passions like lust, greed, the desire for dominance or pleasure, and the fight for survival. And again, this uh, amoral and different universe. The conflicts in naturalistic novels is often man against nature or man against himself as characters struggle to retain a veneer of civilization despite external pressures that threaten to release the brute within. So again, you have these sort of two natures, right? Then human nature, man uh, against himself, the forces of civilization versus these sort of brute instincts, um, how then the individuals struggle to sort of govern themselves by social norms, by rules, by the sort of veneer of civility, even when it goes against what he or she, they might want. Uh, and also the struggle against nature, um, nature, the sort of surrounding environment, whether that's a sort of urban world um, and sort of, or the natural world, the sort of um, elements, the, the cruelty of the elements, like say being in an open boat on the ocean or uh, 
trying not to freeze to death in the extreme cold, as you see in Crane and London stories. I'll give you an example of the philosophy of naturalism in a very short poem by Stephen Crane, the author of our open boat uh, story. And I didn't put in a bunch of biographies uh, of our authors this time. And I, I'm sort of regretting that now, but if you are interested, I will put a link in the lecture materials to, to a sort of short backstory. But this one comes from Stephen Crane, uh, his poem, and it's very short. It's on slide eight. A man said to the universe, sir, I exist. However, replied the universe, the fact has not created in me a sense of obligation. And that really is naturalism in a nutshell. They have this human trying so hard to be and to think and, and to matter and uh, the universe not caring, right? I exist. Yeah, don't care. I'm not responsible for you. You don't impress me. Um, and, and that is uh, this kind of, this uncaring deterministic, yep, there you go, short poem. That is, that is the sort of essential philosophy right there. So this week, again, I asked you guys to read four stories, The Open Boat by Stephen Crane, uh, To Build a Fire by Jack London, Paul's Case by Willa Cather, and A Rose for Emily by William Faulkner. And you can see, put the dates here on slide nine, um, that this is a movement that sort of has late 19th, early 20th century that spans quite a distance. So your first story comes from 1897, The Open Boat, uh, To Build a Fire. There are actually two versions of the story. There's the one you read, which was published in 1908, and there's an earlier version that was published in 1902. And interestingly, the 1902 version is much less dire. Uh, so the he doesn't, I believe the character doesn't die, uh, but the it was changed to sort of well, you can think about why it was changed, uh, what exactly the sort of lesson is, why this version feels sort of truer to naturalism. Paul's Case is by Willa Cather. It was published in 1905 and arose for Emily's William Faulkner, 1930. And so uh, we're going to talk in this lecture about the first three stories in some detail. And then your job for this week's participation assignment is to analyze uh, arose for Emily and think about what makes it particularly sort of fit within naturalism. The open boat and to build a fire are both sort of interested in the man versus nature uh, setup, both man versus nature in terms of the actual natural world, which is quite uh, unforgivingly uh, harsh and powerful, but also sort of humans versus their own choices, uh, their own instincts, which is very much the truth in, in To Build a Fire. And the open boat uh, often gets included in, in sort of studies of naturalism because it really sort of foregrounds the idea of nature um, as external nature, as uh, implacable, powerful, almost evolutionary force. And I have a quote here. There are two quotes on the slide. The first one, the top there is from the open boat toward the end of the story. When it came night, the white waves paced to and fro in the moonlight, and the wind brought the sound of the great sea's voice to the men on shore, and they felt that they could then be interpreters. Which is really interesting, right? Because the story is about these men who are trying desperately to get from the open boat back to the shore. 
uh, and they're described in the story not by their names but by their job titles, kind of a scientific reduction to, to who they are, the correspondent, uh, the, you know, the, and it is evident over the course of the story that there is no real uh, way to, to master this situation. They're just doing the best that they can and their strength and their effort is, is not going to be enough or is barely enough. And it's just implacable and unstoppable. And so at the end, when some of them have made it, it, it this idea that you can sort of personify nature. You can see the white waves pacing. Uh, the wind brought the sound of the great sea's voice to the men on show. So pacing voice, these are all really human qualities to give a natural world that has been so implacable and so kind of inhumane and uncaring. And they felt that they could, be, could then be interpreters. Which you want to think about, right? Like, did this struggle for the for the survivors? Did this did this really give them an ability to understand nature? Can they interpret? What are they? What sort of truth is this story telling? What truth could these these characters tell? Or is this a sort of comforting mechanism? Like, maybe uh, they 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 don't really understand. It's not possible to understand, but this is a comforting way to feel like uh, like meaning and survival has come from this experience. In To Build a Fire, a character ignores advice, right, and, and goes uh, out, and he's, he's sure he will be fine. He is not fine. Uh, there's a dog that follows him, and you can see from the dog's perspective, it gives the, the character kind of, that um, gives the author a way to, to sort of nail home the clinical uncaring perspective, because after the, the man freezes to death, uh, the dog is like, well, not getting any food or warmth here. Off I go. And and this is a sort of um, kind of animal understanding, right? Uh, and that contrasts with the the fate of this of our of our protagonist here. And on this, the second quote I've put on the slide, slide nine, uh, it describes the the sort of last moments of the story. It's not the last uh, part of the short story, but it is the kind of end for our protagonist. It was his last moment of fear. When he had recovered his breath and his control, he sat and thought about meeting death with dignity. However, the idea did not come to him in exactly this manner. His idea was that he had been acting like a fool. He had been running around like a chicken with its head cut off. He was certain to freeze in his present circumstances and he should accept it calmly. With this newfound peace of mind came the first sleepiness. A good idea, he thought, to sleep his way to death. Freezing was not as bad as people thought. There were many worse ways to die. So, again, bleak materialistic determinism, right? There really are not happy endings uh, or triumphant moments. Although, I guess oh, for the open boat, you can sort of make, yeah, okay. So, but this one, nope. So often, uh, even if characters survive, it's bittersweet. Uh, and more often than not, they don't or they lose more in the surviving than they really want to or can afford to pay. In this case, in To Build a Fire, uh, the character, this is his last sort of, you can see this um, meeting death with dignity. You can see the struggle here between the human meaning and context. Let's kind of go back to Pfizer's thing, this idea that like there's some kind of way to to create a kind of human triumph um, and, and meaning and moment and weight to this individual life uh, that is in the process of being lost. But there's also this deterministic sort of natural inevitability 
to 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 his fate. So it's both, um, and that's not to say that this isn't really moving. It, 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 you feel for him, even as the text is sort of constructing the inevitability and the sort of natural uh, result here of, of that fate. Paul's case, the short story by Willa Cather, is also sort of focusing on this man versus um, himself versus a kind of internal nature and man versus external nature as well. So Paul, uh, in this, but this is a sort of, this is an urban, this is naturalism in an urban setting. Paul is a young man who is um, on the run. Uh, he's, he's sort of uh, embezzled and he's, he's off to, to sort of live a life and see sights that he hasn't seen. Uh, but when he finds out that he, um, his grand escape and his, his sort of embezzlement is, is he's about his, his father's going to come for him. His, his dreams are sort of going to collapse. Uh, he commits suicide by jumping in front of a train, overthrowing himself in front of a train. And again, uh, really, really bleak. Um, we'll talk about Paul's struggle and, and how and what kind of nature Paul is working uh, against. Let's look at what kind of nature and what kind of setting, I should say, what kind of method that's sort of contextualizing Paul. So let's look at the description of Paul in the story. I've got this on slide 10 for you. His clothes were a trifle outgrown, and the tan velvet on the collar of his open overcoat was frayed and worn. But for all that, there was something of the dandy about him, and he wore an opal pin in his neatly knotted black foreign hand, and a red carnation in his buttonhole. This latter adornment, the faculty somehow felt, was not properly significant of the contrite spirit befitting a boy under the ban of suspension. Paul was tall for his age and very thin, with high cramped shoulders and a narrow chest. His eyes were remarkable for a certain hysterical brilliancy, and he continually used them in a conscious, theatrical sort of way, peculiarly offensive in a boy. The pupils were abnormally large, as though he were addicted to belladonna, but there was a glassy glitter about them which that drug does not produce. So uh, you can see in this description, this is describing Paul, how he looks, uh, and it's also describing the way the faculty are suspending him, the, the way they react to him and their sort of uh, dislike and, and disgust, a sort of this feeling that there's something unnatural about him. Uh, or at least this, the faculty somehow felt was not properly significant of the contrite spirit. So what don't they like about him? Uh, that his clothing is, is sort of stylish. There's velvet um, and it's something of the dandy about him. So what you actually are reading here, and you can probably pick up on the gendered language, um, tall for his age, thin, cramped shoulders, narrow chest, hysterical brilliancy. We think about hysterical. In the late 19th, early 20th century, hysteria is most often associated with women. This idea that women are hysterical, that they can't control their emotions. Um, that he uses his eyes in a conscious theatrical sort of way, peculiarly offensive in a boy. You can see how much of this language is befitting a boy, offensive in a boy. Paul doesn't conform to gender stereotypes. He's too theatrical. He's too well-dressed. He's too sort of feminine for this audience. He, they're not what, he's not what they think a boy should be. Um, 
and this idea that like his he's not addicted to belladonna but this is what they're thinking like his eyes are so big he must be and you can see that kind of predisposition to judge and to reject uh just based on his experience this kind of gender nonconformity um is enough to sort of make them it's not about what he did in this description right it's about how he looks and how they don't like how he looks uh, his body type his presentation any of that he doesn't fit what they think um, should be what is sort of natural for a boy um, a lot of critics write about this story um, when they think about it they focus on what exactly Paul's struggle is and why he doesn't fit in and his sort of desire for fine things and exploration and artistic uh, expression is we often think of Paul as a character who uh, who doesn't who doesn't fit in his environment because he wants something that's aesthetically better um, and, and that's absolutely true the other part of paul as a character is this kind of um of coding of of sort of like this stereotype of gender and this kind of because this is another thing that comes out of this sort of um social darwinism and this idea of like objective lenses and, and categorizations and sort of classifications of um things that are manly and, and sort of this is not according to those early paul is not that so i want to talk a little bit about also as a, a queer-coded character. And I'll talk about what that means. But basically, uh, in the late 19th and early 20th century, you get the codification and criminalization of, quote -unquote, of homosexuality, of this idea, the labels that we're very familiar with today um, that didn't really exist. Uh, and particularly the sort of pathologization of this, uh, of of this kind of identity and the idea that there was an affect or a persona or ways to sort of diagnose, for example, um, in up until 1952, actually I think it might have first happened in 1952 and it didn't end until the 70s, uh, homosexuality is class, was classed as a psychological disorder. Uh, and you can see this in the term was I think first used in 1896. So you can see this idea of um, a kind of pathologizing and, and, and sort of setting apart of a particular identity. And in the late 1890s, you see um, uh, characters who are, uh, characters, people who are uh, explicitly, who explicitly sort of present or, or not even explicitly, implicitly uh, start to, to suffer um, and sort of a kind of labeling and, and, and rejection. Now, this is not to say that this, um, there weren't always, maybe not always, that the 19th century society before the sort of later period, before this kind of codification, uh, accepted um, the sort of spectrums of sexuality. They didn't, but they thought of them differently. Uh, and so you can see in this time period in both America and the United States, a kind of um, quasi-scientific scrutiny uh, and that went along with the sort of uh, codification and rejection. So anyway, I'll give you some context here in why we might read Paul this way. Uh, this, the air is something of a dandy. Uh, he's got, he's very, he has, he might not have the best quality clothes, but he presents himself well in them and he's wearing a carnation in his buttonhole. And there's a sort of language of flowers here. Uh, this comes from an article. I'm quoting in Joy Store, uh, the green carnation, 
became a queer symbol in 1892 when Oscar Wilde instructed a handful of his friends to wear them on their lapels to the opening night of his comedy Lady Windermere's Fan. Uh, from then on, wearing a green carnation on your lapel was a sort of secret, subtle hint that you were a man who loved other men. And you can see uh, the sort of language of flowers in, in text. And now green carnation, Paul's carnation is not green, it's red. But you can see this like this sort of this gesture, this this kind of um, signal to to people who who would know to look to sort of read that. Oscar Wilde, a brilliant uh, playwright, satirist, poet, uh, who was also who did uh, who was sentenced by the British government to hard labor for his sexuality. Uh, and if you're interested. In that story, it is easily available. You can also read what he wrote, uh, The Ballad of Reading Goal, about uh, how that experience affected him. So you can think about the, the tension here for Paul in the sort of in his environment. And Paul presents in a way that the other people around him, particularly authority figures like his his teachers, don't appreciate. They reject him because they sort of reject this um, condition this what they think he is and what they think that means um, the, the sort of uh, unfit and how this they their uh, analysis of him their reading of him sort of unfits him even more for the the surroundings in which he lives I want to talk also about the language that I'm using here uh, because this is one of those words that you want to be super careful with on slide 12 I've given you the definition of the word queer, uh, which sort of, you can see the etymologies here. Uh, it means, the initial meaning, strange or odd. Uh, and then there's an offensive meaning, which is the slur. And the that is the, to refer to um, someone who is gay, homosexual. Uh, and it is an offense, like to use it as an adjective and a noun without an article or with an article or just sort of at all this is a slur right it is you know in for the lgbtqia plus community it is a reclaimed word it is something that is used within the community it can be used to sort of self-identify in a kind of empowering way uh, and it also is a word in theory in literary theory when we talk about queer theory queer coding queer culture and we're using that word as, as part of that reclaimed tradition to identify uh, but not discriminate against the sort of ways in which uh, this is represented represented excuse me in literature so um, when you think right talk about this do not use this word as a slur right you think about queer theory you can think about queer coding but do not refer to individuals uh, do not describe characters or people using this word uh, because that is uh, that is still uh, an offensive term. It's a slippery slope and it, it's one of those words that depends on who you are, how you're using it, and, and sort of your life experiences. So be careful with this word, but also um, and sort of recognize that when we talk about, um, we talk about naturalism we talk about this as well like we talk about and we talk about other texts this idea of uh, as this identity um, becomes codified and, and criminalized and sort of 
pushed back against in the 19th and 20th centuries. Uh, you also see literature that, that, that encodes this identity that sort of celebrates and mourns uh, the, the sort of persecution uh, it as, uh, as this is happening, this sort of in reaction and reflection of it. So you want to think about um, I want to think about what sort of the struggle for Paul is and, and what role his sort of presentation and identity. And do I know if Paul is gay? No, no, I don't. What I know, what you all know from reading this, when looking at it, is that he doesn't, he, he reads as other, as, as kind of um, not what a boy should be. And this idea of kind of the assumption that the way his affect and the way he presents himself means this particular thing about who he loves and how he will live is very much a 19th, like this is very much a sort of assumption, right? That, um, that is recognizable and easy to make and a kind of naturalistic determinant. But what, Cather is doing in this story is is asking readers, I think, to think about how that makes it difficult uh, for Paul to survive. The, the the lack of acceptance, the sort of intrinsic rejection of him based on how he looks, how he dresses, how he moves through the world, how he presents himself, um, is is enough. And this idea that People think they can see him and, and know things and know something about him and that makes him unworthy or that makes him as sort of dangerous and, and not right uh, is, is part of this kind of um, man versus environment sort of understanding. So in this case, the environment is that sort of constructed by other humans, these expectations, this sort of uh, understanding. So when we look at Paul's case, we're looking at Paul as, um, as someone, as a, as a kind of persona, as a person uh, who doesn't fit into the world that he knows. Uh, and the, we also want to think about what he wants his world to be and sort of the, the aesthetic, the adventure and the aesthetic and the sort of beauty that he hopes to find that the world is not offering him. So he doesn't fit within his space with, with, with what he knows and he wants something else. He wants something better and he doesn't find it. So if we look on slide 13, this is the ending of the story. The sound of an approaching train awoke him and he started to his feet, remembering only his resolution and afraid lest he should be too late. He stood watching the approaching locomotive, his teeth chattering, his lips drawn away from them in a frightened smile. Once or twice, he glanced nervously sideways, as though he were being watched. When the right moment came, he jumped. As he fell, the folly of his haste occurred to him with merciless clearness, the vastness of what he had left undone. There flashed through his brain, clearer than ever before, the blue of Adriatic water, the yellow of Algerian sands. He felt something strike his chest, and that his body was being thrown swiftly through the air, on and on, immeasurably far and fast, while his limbs were gently relaxed. Then, because the picture-making mechanism was crushed, the disturbing visions flashed into black, and Paul dropped back into the immense design of things. So there's this moment of regret, uh, the merciless clearness in which he sees how much he's left undone, 
But you see also um, that that last phrase, he's felt something strike his chest and that his body was being thrown swiftly through the air. Uh, then, because the picture-making mechanism was crushed, the disturbing visions flashed into black, and Paul dropped back into the immense design of things. So he becomes, over the course of his death, over this, in this moment of his death, no longer a person, but a mechanism, an organism, right? The picture-making mechanism was crushed. What does that mean? It means his, his brain, his identity, his life force. Um, the disturbing visions flashed into black, and Paul dropped back into the immense design of things. So the immense design of things. What is that? Uh, the universe, he's the, the world, something larger. It's definitely not his everyday life. Um, but this idea that he becomes somehow less than human, that there's this very, very clinical language um, that makes him seem like a machine, uh, almost in the end, that sort of takes away the, the human and the emotion and the sort of suffering and pathos of it and, and reduces it to a kind of design. And you want to think about what Cather's doing here, um, what kind of effect she wanted the story to have and maybe what kind of commentary on, on naturalism she's making. Is this this critique of society? Is this a, a kind of... Um, is the bleakness of this hopefully going to spark some... Uh, some kind of understanding, some kind of behavioral modification in readers. That's a lot to hope for from naturalism. Maybe it's it's about marking uh, and, and sort of observing um, the sort of unfair, the, the bleak, that the harshness of what life is like for this character Paul and for, for people like Paul who, who read as different, who have on them, sort of coded in on, onto them, uh, by their society, a rejection, uh, sort of on the kind of same level that happens to Paul. Um, this idea that it's, it, it doesn't have to be, naturalism doesn't have to be about a kind of implacable uh, external nature, that there are forces, internal forces, but also social forces, that your, your peers, your life, the people um, who surround you, your society can be just as cruel and, and just as implacable and just as unforgiving and just as sort of harsh. And you can see that in Paul's case. So I put this collection of short stories together because I think they are a really good range of the uh, possible. Now, they're not an exhaustive range. There are quite a few uh, short stories and novels that explore uh, all of these sort of... Um, themes that we talked about in, in great detail um, and in different, that come to different conclusions uh, in different ways. So if this is something that you find really interesting, uh, let me know. Uh, I can give you, I can give you some other sort of naturalism uh, texts within the, the sort of rubric of naturalism to read. Uh, if you never want to read another naturalist story again, uh, I feel you. Uh, it, this can, it, they can be hard. They can be really bleak. It's hard to, to there are very, very, very few uh, quote-unquote happy endings. That's sort of the point. Uh, hang on with me just a little bit longer, however, because the story that we haven't talked about yet uh, and that we're not going to talk about in this lecture, but you will be talking about for your participation assignment is A Rose for Emily by William Faulkner. So what I'd like you guys to do is to go back to this story because I know you've all already read it, uh, go back to the story and think about what makes the story uh, naturalism, what, what makes the story naturalist. Uh, think about the tenets of naturalism that we talked about in this lecture. I keep saying we, it's 
habit that I've talked about that I wish I could talk about with you guys. Uh, think about sort of the overview that you've just listened to. Think about how it fits in with the other stories that we read for this week, like sort of the tensions again. Uh, how, what sort of does this remind you of? How does it fit? And write a four to five paragraph analysis of A Rose for Emily in which you answer questions one and two. Uh, that I've just described to you that are on slide 14 here. I want you to use specific examples in the form of at least two direct quotations from the story to support your argument. So I'm essentially asking you to go through the story and think about how it works with the other texts that we've read, but also sort of how, what makes this part of naturalism? What, how, how do we see, um, how is this naturalism? Could you Google this? And would there be study aids, et cetera, that would find the answer for you? Yeah, of course there would be, but please don't use them, guys. This is, uh, I'm not interested in the thoughts, feelings of grade saver, spark notes, schmoop, whatever the, I, I don't care what the internet has to say about this. I wanna see what you have to say about this. So please uh, do this on your own. Uh, and, and I look forward to reading your analyses. Next week, you only have one reading. It is a longer reading. It is the novella Ethan Frome. Uh, so please make sure that you get started on that one early and that you do indeed read all of it. Again, it's the only reading uh, for next week. So let me know if you have any questions about the materials for this week, about next week, or anything in general. You can send me an email uh, to my RBC email address or you can message me in Canvas. Otherwise... That's going to do it for this week. Be back next week with Ethan Frome.